In 2002, a West Virginian building contractor named Andrew Jackson Whitaker Jr. won the Powerball Lottery. And the prize was over $315 million, which was the largest amount that anyone had won up to that point. Now, Jack, he rarely played the lottery because he was the president of his own construction company, and he was already worth around 12 or $17 million. But even after taxes, his winnings were $113 million. So that was a good day. He quickly tithed 10,000% or 10% to church. He donated millions of dollars to charity. He gave the cashier who sold him the winning ticket $43,000. And then he drove around his neighborhood just throwing cash out the window in generosity. Now, despite all his generosity, and even despite his knowledge of how to handle millions of dollars, because he already had millions, he eventually lost it all after only four years. He was robbed repeatedly. His granddaughter was murdered, and they never found out who did it. He was sued by a casino for bouncing checks and gambling debts. And his daughter then later died under some weird circumstances. His house burned down and was underinsured, and within four years he had just lost all of it. Now, as good Christians, we might you know, say and know that, well, money can't buy happiness. We even know that when we die, it's all going to stay here, yet most of us would still like a chance to win the lottery and see if we could do better than Jack, don't we? Because deep down, I think that all of us really do love money. I mean, to varying degrees, of course, you might object and say that, no, Pastor, I, I don't love money, but as I look around, I don't think anyone that I know has taken a vow of poverty yet, so I'm going to assume that we still do love it even though we know it doesn't really satisfy us. And so this morning we're going to talk a lot about wealth and loving money. Our journey through Ecclesiastes has left us pondering, you know, how do we spend our lives in light of our coming death? So this morning our primary question for us to answer is, well, do you love money or do you love Jesus? So we can't really love both. And so our passage this morning, we're going to finish chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, starting in verse 8, and we're going to go all the way to the end of chapter 6. So if you are able, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, starting in Ecclesiastes 5.8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones above him. There is a gain for the land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to their hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. But he is father of a son, but has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so he shall go. What gain is there in him who toils in the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, and in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and to find enjoyment in all the toil in which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him for his lot. Everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. 
for he will not remember much the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joys in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun that lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires, yet God doesn't give him the power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. It is a vanity and a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun, nor known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet no, enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. What advantage has the wise man over the fool? What is the poor man who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better in the sight of the eyes is the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after wind. Whatever has come has already been named, and it is known what man is, that he should not be able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. What is the advantage of man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, for he passes like shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would allow us to hear your words this morning. Lord, would you convict our hearts, help us to be honest with ourselves, and when we are not, would your Holy Spirit convict us where we love the things of this world more than you. We pray this in your holy and precious name, amen. You can be seated. We're going to talk this morning about two dangers of loving money, and then we'll conclude by looking to Jesus. So our first point, if you're taking notes in your bulletin, is that loving money destroys others and ourselves. That loving money destroys others and ourselves. This is just one of the first dangers of money and wealth. It doesn't just disappear when you die. It actually harms others and you right now. It promises to make our life easier, but it kills. And loving money and having wealth, they often go hand in hand. Okay, you typically don't have lots of something unless you love it. Okay, my love for books is revealed by how many books are on all of my bookshelves. Now, the more that we collect, the more that we hoard our money, the more that we prove how much we love it, or we wouldn't keep it. But this love, this hoarding, it destroys, and first it destroys others. Verse 8, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor, the violation of justice and righteousness, don't be amazed at the matter. For the high officials watch by higher, and they're higher over him. He says, if you see the poor being oppressed, if you see poor people being locked up because they couldn't afford a good lawyer, while the rich go free, if you hear stories like Brett Favre or other graduate figures, they're stealing money from welfare programs designed to care for the poor so they can build sports stadiums. If you see justice and righteousness violated, if you see stories of people abandoning the Bible, abandoning God's words and His ways because they just don't like it, you see stories of pastors and religious figures violating the righteousness that they claim to preach by abusing people. When we see all these things, don't be amazed. Don't be amazed. I just love the brutal honesty of this book. Solomon, the author, is just saying, duh. What do you expect? When you see people destroying each other for money, do not be shocked. This is normal. This is the world. This is what happens. It goes on to explain, for a high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. There is sin and injustice everywhere because of greed. 
and the people in charge and in power are greedy. And they're allowing injustice and oppression because it lines their pockets. And the watching out for one another is not positive here, it's a negative watching. They're watching out to protect each other. Each higher official is watching the official below them. They're watching them to make sure that they still get their money. They want to make sure those below them don't step out of line and slow the flow of money into their own pockets. Verse 9, but this gain, this is gain for a land in every way. The king is committed to cultivated fields. I think this verb here is a proverb. It's kind of serving as an, an opposite of the previous verse. It's saying, well, how different would it be if the highest authority in the land isn't driven by a love of money, but just a love for the land and the people in it. That he's committed to the good of others because wherever their greed and the love of money drives our leaders, it filters all the way down to the rest of us. And the love of money and wealth that destroys society and the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice. And we see this all the time, don't we? See it in many ways. We see it when businesses cut corners in order to make as much money as possible. It reminds us even if they're making a much worse product, they don't mind as long as they're making more money. Or the way a business can underpay workers so that executives can get a bigger bonus at Christmas time. This doesn't just destroy society or hurt other people, it also hurts ourselves. Primarily, it destroys our ability to be satisfied. We see this, the promise of having enough money or wealth. The promise of it is that once you get it, you're going to feel really good. It'll work. Once you see that number on your paycheck, once your salary gets that many zeros each year, once your retirement account hits that number, then you'll be satisfied. Then you'll feel like you're really rich and wealthy and content. But we're warned in verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. It never works. You can love money and wealth all you want. It will never love you back. You will never make enough money. You will never hold enough in your hands. It is vanity and vaporous. We're like dogs chasing our tails or greyhounds chasing that metallic rabbit that they're never going to chase. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Okay, the goods increasing, that's your wealth and your money. It's going up. You're getting more. Or simply put, really here what it's saying is the more money you have, the more money you're going to spend. When your income goes up, so do your taxes. So does your cost of living. You make more money and you think, well, maybe I can get out of renting now. Maybe I'll buy a house. That'll satisfy. And sure, you're not paying a rental company or a landlord now, but now you've got to play the plumber and the handyman when all the things break because your bills have still gone up. You buy a bigger house or a bigger car, but now you've got a bigger gas bill. More insurance, pay more on utilities. Or now you got extra income, so you have to eat more. But what advantage is all of that? Okay, there's more, some more zeros in there, but they're still going to go away. Verse 1 of chapter 6, There's an evil I've seen under the sun that lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so he lacks nothing, gets all he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. A stranger enjoys them. It's vanity. And a grievous evil. You can have all the money you can possibly imagine, but it will not satisfy. You will not be able to enjoy it. There is no amount of money that can scratch the itch inside of your heart. Verse 12, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. He says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. You see, loving wealth, it, doesn't, it ends up destroying our ability to rest 
as well. The promise of wealth is going to bring you freedom and goodness, but instead it just brings another burden on your back. You'll lie awake at night worrying, plotting about how you can get more. And the proverb in 12, it's not saying that the poor don't have to worry, but it's saying that those who are not in love with money and wealth, they can find rest. They can still sleep. And I don't think it's either just about how loving money will affect your sleep. Well, that's true. I think more significantly, it's loving money affects your ability to enter into the Sabbath rest of Jesus that he promises. See, following Jesus is an easy burden, where his yoke is light. Hebrews 4 tells us Jesus is a place where we can find true rest for our souls. But you will never enter into the rest of Jesus if you are serving another master. And money destroys. Verse 3 through 6 uses a story. He compares two people. He says, if a man fathers a hundred children, and he lives many years so that the days of his life are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Comes in vanity, goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Thank you, Sydney. Uh, moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to one place. So he compares two people here in, in chapter 6. And he uses kind of an extreme example. So one, he talks about a man who has a hundred children. And it's in the ancient world, that's really how you measure wealth and prosperity. It's how big your family is, how much long your name is going to go on. He's going to have a legacy and a dynasty. He's going to live a long and prosperous life. And he contrasts this to his stillborn child. Now for those of you in here who have miscarried or had a stillbirth or who have lost children, this metaphor might be a little painful for you. Um, it was painful for me when I first was reading it this week. Because a child that doesn't survive, it is a great tragedy, isn't it? Um, like many of you, maybe you've seen the news in our community of a three-year-old um, who was murdered. And as I read the obituary in my kitchen this week, I, just, I read it and I just started crying. I don't have any connection to the family at all. It just, it's a horror. These verses are trying to tell us, it's not that the death of the stillbirth of children is just a glorious good and it's wonderful. No, it's terrible. But he's trying to use an extreme example to show us there's another tragedy in our midst as well. That we're meant to picture the person who has it all. The person with a loving family and beautiful children. They're CEO of a company. They started it all by themselves. They've climbed to the top. They were born in a log cabin. Now they're a billionaire. The one who has everything they could imagine, yet their soul is not satisfied. Solomon says that's a tragedy. We should look at the lists of the most wealthy and rich and we should weep for their souls. That they couldn't, even if they could find all the newest medical technology and live for a thousand and then another thousand years, it ain't going to work. Money will not satisfy and they will still die. But in contrast, the unborn find rest. Not under the sun, not in fancy toys or in song, but they find it in the satisfaction in the arms of Jesus. Because the rich and wealthy are not people to envy, but they are people to weep for. Because they will not be satisfied. Verse 7, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. We're never satisfied with money because our appetite always grows. Doesn't it? The love of wealth, it's like a parasite. 
It's a tapeworm. It attaches itself to your stomach and all that you gain and you work harder and think and work and work thinking it's going to feed you. But the only thing that you're feeding is that parasite in your tummy. So no matter how much you eat or drink, that parasite's going to get larger and larger while you just keep getting hungrier and hungrier. No matter, no matter how much you consume. All the while understanding what's going on. Why, why is this not working? Now we don't have time to hit all of the, the verses in chapter 6. Um, but they all kind of follow this, this same theme of just how wealth destroys us. You know, verse 8 is, what does it even matter if you're really wise with money or you're really dumb with it? It's going to hurt you if you try to keep it. And we're all going to die if you can't take it with you. The tragedy of it, too, is that the, even loving money, it won't last. Our, our second point here is that the money we love will fade. The money we love will fade. It's a universal truth. All of us know. You don't have to be a Christian to understand this. So that we can't take wealth with us. You might even be able to get enough money that you could create generational wealth so your grandchildren, your descendants will never have to worry. But you still ain't going to take any of it with you. It will fade. And it won't last even here. Solomon begins, he uses an example of a man's investments. Verse 13, there's a grievous evil in chapter 5. There's a grievous evil I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Those riches were lost in a bad venture. He is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. So he describes someone who has riches. He has lots of wealth and means, so he does what a smart person would do. He invests it. That's what people do, right? If they have lots of money, they find ways to invest that money to make more money. But unfortunately, it says all those riches were lost. It's not just he didn't get a good return on his investment. It's not just he lost a little bit, but if he holds on to it, maybe it'll come back. The market will bounce. It's all those riches are gone. And even though this man's a father, he has a son, he has children's support, he's lost all of his wealth, he has nothing in his hands. This verse is warning us. It's not just that your money will fade one day when you die and disappear. It's also that your money can fade today, now. And it can disappear quickly. Even if you're really smart, even if you're wise, even if you do all of the right things, you follow the advice that you're supposed to follow, you save your money, you have the emergency fund, you invest so you can get good returns, it can all still disappear and leave you with nothing. You can get one bad medical diagnosis and it'll wipe out all your money even if you thought you had really good insurance. One accident can leave you disabled and now you can't work anymore. Pandemic can come. A recession or depression can wipe out the whole nation's economy. Natural disasters can come and steal everything you have, like many in Florida are finding out this week, who've lost their homes, their businesses, and much of their riches. Man, we can try and be wise. We need to have insurance, do our best to be prepared, but the insurance company can still deny your claim. I'm sure that's happened before, hasn't it? All our riches can fade. Now, we've experienced this a little bit, right? The... I, I can connect with the example of this man losing things. The few times that I've tried to invest money, it's always gone poorly. Um, I think I'm pretty financially savvy a little bit. Okay? I'm wise with money. We're, we're fairly wise with our expenses. We save a lot. We're, we're smart. And so since Brianna and I have been saving a lot, I came and said, hey, Bri, you know, I've been reading, and we're, just, we're not investing. We need to, we need to be investing and, and doing that. So I'm trying to learn. I think this is good. We should start you know, making sure we're saving for retirement or for our kids so we can play for school. So we were, we're already saving all this money, so instead of just letting it sit in the bank account, let's, let's be wise with this. Well, now every time I've done that, 
The nation's economy has collapsed. Not long after, I decide to invest. Um, so don't come to me for financial advice on how to get more money. I'm clearly not doing something correct. And in fact, if I tell you, if I ever tell you, hey, you know, I just invested some money in the stock market, you should probably go ahead and get all of yours out, would be wise. And it just, it, it just has to make me laugh right now because you can do all of the right things, can't you? And not that I've done everything right, but you can follow all the right steps. You can be as wise as wise can be and your money will still disappear. It can fade like dust. None of us are in control. Verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb, so he shall go again naked as he came and take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. If for some reason your money doesn't fade while you're here on this life and you get lucky and God's providence is gracious to you, when you die and the breath leaves your lungs, that money's all going into the ground. It ain't coming with you. Just like Job. All of us came into this world naked and we're going to leave it with nothing. There's nothing they can, someone can put in your casket or in your urn. There's nothing that our loved ones can close us in or put in our hands. All of your riches and all your wealth will stay here. And then your family will fight over it. The government or the bank will come and collect on your debt. Some is going to go to pay for the expenses of caring for you because death isn't cheap either. And then whatever is left is going to get sold for pennies or thrown in a fire or in a dump. Wherever any of it's going to go, it ain't going with you. The money that you love, it's going to fade. Verse 16, this is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so he shall go. And what gain is there for who toils in the wind? So I saw him as asking, what gain is there? What is the point of trying to live your life, trying to gain more and more and more? So you can get a few more stacks of green paper to bring with you. You can look and see a few more ones and zeros on a computer screen. What does that do for your soul? Nothing. Money phase, and he describes it as being an evil because human beings, we are destroying each other for dust that fades away and disappears. We sacrifice our families and our lives for wind. Vanity, vanity. Meaningless, meaningless. It's vaporous. Trying to hold on to riches, it's like trying to hold on to handfuls of sand in a tornado. It's all going to blow away. You can't keep it. And it's not just that it's a waste of time, it's also that it destroys our souls. Verse 17, moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. He's repeating himself again a little bit, but he's saying that all those who are striving after the wind, we are only going to find vexation and sickness and anger. It's going to eat you up from the inside out. I want you to picture like a miserable troll eating alone in the dark. In a place devoid of all light and love. That's where the love of money will lead you and will leave you sooner or later. So it's going to destroy others and then ourselves and it'll just fade away. But how can we resist? Our, our last point when we come to Jesus is I think that our love for Jesus should change how we love money. That our love for Jesus should change how we love money. Jesus warns us in Matthew chapter 6 that we can't serve two masters. We will either serve and love Jesus or we will love money. We will either love God or we will love our wealth, but we cannot do both. Now we're tempted, we love money because of what we think it can give us. We think that it can provide for us, that it'll give us our daily bread. We believe that it'll give us safety and security. We think it'll give us satisfaction. We think that it'll give us joy, but it can't. Only Jesus can. 
Go back to 18 in, in chapter 5. And behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil in which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Now this doesn't just mean that we should love, you know, a little bit of money instead of being greedy. I don't think that's what he's saying. What I think he is saying is that our love for God, it should change. It should impact how you view your possessions and all that you have. It has to change your relationship with it. And say, in 19, everyone who comes to God, or also anyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, and to accept His lot and rejoice in His toil, this is the gift of God. We have to recognize that what we have is a gift. It's not God. It can't satisfy your hearts. Only God can. And following Jesus does satisfy. I love the classic line from St. Augustine. So for a century, North African church father, he said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. The love of money will always leave your heart restless. And notice the difference here in 19. When you compare verse 19 in chapter 5 to 6-2. Okay, in 6-2 he says, a man, God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so he lacks nothing, yet God doesn't give him the power to enjoy them. But in 18, in 19, or 19, the man is given wealth, possessions, and power to accept his lot and is the gift of God. And in 18, this is, God gives him the ability to enjoy these things. The power see, even to enjoy or to be content with what we have, that's something that comes from God. You can't do that by yourself. Verse 20, he will not remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. God is the one who can give our hearts joy. Okay, we can either love money or we can love Jesus. And there's only one of those that we can love that will actually restore us and satisfy us without fading away. And that's Jesus. I love what Jesus told the woman at the well. He had the water of everlasting life. And those who drink of it will never thirst again. If you drink from the wells of riches and money, you're going to keep having to drink. And drink... And drink and drink and drink and drink and drink until your stomach explodes and it leaves you a wreck. But those who run to Jesus will be satisfied. They will find true joy and everlasting peace and get to be occupied with the joy God gives them in his heart. You see, because loving Jesus, it changes the way, not that we just love love, but that we love everything else. That Jesus transforms us completely. And our love for Christ, it must transform the way that we feel about wealth and riches. Because the, ultimately the restoration and the satisfaction of Jesus, it's, it's eternal. We know this, that money fades, it decays, it depreciates. But the, the life that we live for Jesus, that is the best kind of investment. Okay, there's no place you can invest your money here that's really going to last. But we can invest our lives in Jesus and live forever. The hope of the gospel and the resurrection of Christ is not just that when we die we get to live again. It is also that our lives as we spend them now will matter. That the life that we spend loving Jesus, the life spent obeying Jesus and following Jesus, that even what we do in small moments, like just being content with what he's given, will reap eternal rewards. And not that it will give us more money on the other side of life, but that it will give us more of the blessings of God and Jesus. 
But he's what we want. Practically, how can we do this? I mean, how can we, how can we see or how can we make sure that our love for Jesus is transforming the way we love money? Well, I think one of the biggest ways we can do this is by giving our money away. Okay, we, don't, we don't talk about money a ton here at Tanglewood. Um, I, but I really don't know how to preach a sermon on this passage without talking about it, so I'm sorry. It's all about wealth. But one of the marks of Christians really throughout the New Testament is that they're generous people. They're not holding on. They're not hoarding. They're giving it away. Right? The rich young ruler, he came. Came to Jesus. And he said, well, what do I got to do to get eternal life? And he said, well, one thing you lack. You got to give it all away. And he went away sad. Because he loved his possessions more than Jesus. He didn't think Jesus was worth it. But as Christians... If we believe in our hearts and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, then we do, should believe that Jesus is worth far more than our possessions, far more than all that we have, far more than every dollar in our bank accounts or anything that we could dream. And so we should give it away. Right, Zacchaeus, when he repented and he followed Jesus, he gave away much of his wealth to the poor and he gave away and made right all that he had cheated and stolen from. Why? He thought Jesus was better. Than his wealth. The disciples who followed Jesus, they left all of their jobs, all their riches behind to just wander around following this rabbi. The early believers, they sold what they had to be distributed to those who were in need. And in Acts, we see even the poorest churches were taking up collections to give to the other believers who were under a famine in Jerusalem. This is the way that loving Jesus should change us. So good spiritual practice is just regular generosity. It's not just giving from our excess, not giving from our leftovers, but giving from everything we have continually. It's giving in a way that keeps us from becoming wealthy. It's giving in a way that takes away our fun expenses. We're going to spend on something for ourselves and give it to someone else. One way to do that is by tithing, giving to a local church, not just our church. There are many churches in the kingdom of God. We should give other places as well. I don't just mean that. We should give when we know that there are people in need in our community. We should give when we know there are people in our church family who have needs, and we can help them. We should give. There are so many. There's over 100 nonprofits, last I counted, just in Stevens County alone should give to them. I know many of us do. That is a good way to make sure that we are not falling in love with our money. One couple I know of, they decided early in their marriage um, that every year they were going to increase the percentage of how much they gave away. So instead of getting more things, instead of getting a bigger house and nicer cars, they decided and committed that every year we will just get more and more generous. They built that into a practice of their marriage. So by the time they were getting ready to retire, they were giving away half of everything they made away. And they were fine. Why? Well, they didn't just wake up and one day decide, well, we'll get wealthy and then we'll do that. They said, no, well, we're poor. We don't have anything. We'll, we'll start doing that now. And they didn't do it because they were rich. They were just an ordinary couple. They did it because they loved Jesus more than anything on earth. And one of the ways they showed it was just holding their things with open hands, giving it to any who needed now, that's not the only way that I think we should live, but I think we have to live in a way that makes it clear that Jesus is our master, that Jesus is the one we love, not our wealth, 
and not our money. Now, I don't know what that's going to look like for you. We're on all sorts of different backgrounds, sorts of different contexts. But the same question I have that we need to ask all of us is, well, what do I really love? Do I really love my money or do I really love Jesus? And we might all say I really love Jesus, but that will, when I look at how I handle my money, do, does it look like I really love Jesus? Or does it look like I just say that I do? So this morning we've, we've been talking, we said that the love of money, it destroys others, it destroys ourselves. And everything you have, it's going to fade away. It's either going to fade before you die or it's going to fade after. But either way, it's going away. And I think that our love for Jesus, it has to change the way that we love money. Ultimately, it should get rid of it altogether. But that's a slow process. So the question I have, again, is just do you love money or do you love Jesus? Because if you love Jesus, it should change everything. I'm going to close this in prayer and invite our worship team to come up one more time. Lord, I Lord, I ask that you would forgive us for loving things instead of you. Um, there's so much in this life that we are, are tempted by. There's so many of the good, wonderful gifts that you've given us. Even the idea of money is not evil, but it is a gift and it is a gift that we twist. And we look for instead of looking to you. Lord, would you forgive us? And, and we pray and we ask that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit, that you would help us to love you more than we love anything else in this life. And Lord, that our love for you would change us. That because of the gospel and the way that we have been given new life and been reborn and are a new creation, that it would change the way that we interact in the world. That it would change the way we do our budgets. That it would change the way we give. That it would change the way we spend. That it would change every corner of our lives. Because, Lord, we want to love you more than we love anything else. But we need your help. We ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand um, as we worship our Savior in song once more. His grace is amazing. Um, and the amazing thing about His grace is not just that He saved us, but that He saved us and then continues to aid us and help us every day. He doesn't leave us alone. Our benediction this month is from Hebrews 13, and I love the promise in it that God will equip us for every good thing that we need. We are not just on our own. It is His grace. So here is His benediction from Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.